You're listening to the teaching podcast of The Crossing Church. We exist so that the real you can have a daily encounter with the real Jesus in word and deed. For more information about our church, visit crossingparagold.com. This morning we're going to continue our series called Preach the Gospel. So will you stand with me as we turn to Micah 6? And if you do not own a Bible, if you don't have a physical copy of the Bible, Alicia here in the back would love to hand one to you. We think it's of utmost importance to have a physical copy of the Bible. So if you don't have one, you can raise your hand and Alicia will bring one over to you. And it's our gift to you. Um, So Marlon is going to read our text to us this morning. Micah 6. 6 through 8. With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with ten thousand rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. Amen. Let's pray. Um, Father, uh, thank you for your word. Thank you for revealing yourself to us uh, in your word. Um, Thank you for the mercy that we read about in your word. Forgive us when we try to bring to you some kind of tainted offering to appease you. We live in a broken world. I just read this morning about a shooting that happened down in in Dumas, uh, Arkansas, and just like brokenhearted about the harm that happens in our world. And uh, acknowledge that we live in a world where, where we can be in danger at any point, and yet we also can be dangerous. We bring darkness to the world and our sin as well. So, Spirit of God, we ask that you would come and speak to us through your word. May you um, you speak directly to people. Like, get me out of the way. I'm just a weak vessel trying to present your word to people. Like, your word is the power. And so, Spirit of God, would you come and be with us? It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You can be seated. So, uh, in 2012... Author Tanner Colby uh, released a book that, that I read and I loved. It's called Some of My Best Friends Are Black. Uh, it, it details out these four sectors of our uh, society in America where racial integration was and still is to some extent an extreme challenge. Uh, these four sectors uh, that he walked through progressively through the book were the school system, uh, real estate neighborhoods, um, marketing uh, kind of in a job world, and then the church. Now, as I was reading through this, this was just recommended to me. A person I think recommended to me didn't even know this uh, fact about me. But as I'm reading to, through it, I got shocked as I hit the section on real estate. Why? Of all the neighborhoods in the country, and this guy talked about like New York City and Birmingham, Alabama, and I can't, I think the, the church was down in, in New Orleans. Um, all the neighborhoods in the city that he could have been writing about, he wrote about my neighborhood, the one I lived in. 
Blue Hills neighborhood in Kansas City. Sarah and I had just a couple years before bought a hundred year old house in this neighborhood. This neighborhood back when it was first started was an up and coming middle class, like white, 100% white neighborhood until the 1950s came. Things started to change right after World War II. A famous man in Kansas City named J.C. Nichols, who until very recently had his name over all kinds of stuff. And he had a statue. They've started pulling those things down as the realities of who he was has come, come to light. He developed a plan for developing these brand new neighborhoods over on the Kansas side of Kansas City. And what, what was happening was over time, minorities were kind of coming closer and closer to where the, the, he lived. And so he built this neighborhood off to the side. And see, these houses had on their deeds like restrictions. Like if you wanted to uphold this restriction, you could legally say, hey, to a, to a minority, whether black, Jewish, uh, oriental, it would say words like that, that if you didn't want to sell it to them, you had a legal right. The, the deed says, I can't sell it to you. Sorry, bro. But J.C. Nichols wanted to go a step further. So he developed these neighborhoods that the entire neighborhood had a deed restriction that even if a homeowner wanted to sell to a minority, they could not do it because the entire neighborhood was blocked off like that. But how do you get people to move from a neighborhood like Blue Hills to a neighborhood over on the Kansas side? Well, he had partnered with guys like Bob Wood. Now, Bob Wood doesn't have his name on anything in Kansas City. Bob Wood doesn't have a statue because Bob Wood would work under the, uh, the back end of things. And what he would do is he'd go into a neighborhood like Blue Hills. He'd actually find like a widow and he'd buy the house directly next door to her. And then he would rent it out to the most unsavory minority that he could find. He'd lose money on that house because that wasn't the way he was going to be making money. What he would do is he would prey upon the widow and the other neighbors around them and say, hey, do you see... This minority family move in. These numbers are going to sound crazy, but there are more real numbers. Uh, but he would say to them, you know, pretty soon your house is only going to be worth about $2,000. In reality, it was worth about $10,000, which is still crazy given our market, but still. Your house is only going to be worth about $2,000 really soon, but I'll give you five right now. And you'll be able to get out of here before it's too late. And so they would sell and they'd move off to J.C. Nichols' new neighborhoods. And then he would sell that house to a minority family for much more than he bought it for. And he would charge them a ridiculous mortgage interest rate. Right now, this week, Jared and I were even talking about interest rates that are going on right now. And they're going up and it's like four or something like that. It's like, no, no, no. We're talking like 25, 35% interest rates. Like it's ridiculous. And so they would default on their loan and a victim and bring in another family. But what he would be able to do is every time he could sell a house to another minority family, the, the, the value of the neighborhood would keep going down and he'd keep preying upon these other people. And so in a matter of just a couple years, he could flip a neighborhood from 100% white to 100% minority. In busting up these blocks, Bob Wood and J.C. Nichols took advantage of both minority families and white families. Stole money from everybody. So I think you could agree these men did not operate in accordance with Micah 6.8, right? They didn't act justly. They didn't love mercy. They didn't walk humbly with their God. So if you go home today and read through Micah's short book, it's only seven chapters or so, you'd find that the leaders of Israel were also acting with injustice. The rich were taking 
advantage of the sojourner in the market. They were taking advantage of the poor in labor relations. They were taking advantage of the widow in terms of real estate after the, the patriarch of the family would die. And so throughout Micah, God is pronouncing judgment on the nation of Israel because they are unjust. He has promised to uproot them, to destroy their works, to exile them. And here in the middle of chapter 6, we see Micah gives some voice to Israel's leaders as they ask, well, what can we offer God for him to drop this judgment? And so Micah, look at verse uh, 6 in chapter 6. It says, With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? Now, at first, it's almost comical to think about the fact that these leaders think that they can offer God their riches, which they stole from their own people. It's like, yeah, hey, I I know I stole these hundred uh, cattle, but what if I tithe 20%? Then would you let me off the hook for stealing a hundred cattle? Like, it makes no sense. It's the same thing as us. If you cheat on your taxes and you beg God, God, please don't let me get caught. Like, please take my anxiety away because I broke the law. Please help me get away with this. And I promise this time I'll give money to the church. It doesn't make sense. But it's the last verse in uh, verse seven there that makes me pause so painfully. It says, shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression? The fruit of my body for the sin of my soul. Can you imagine being so blinded by your sin, by your idolatry, that you would offer your firstborn to cover your sinfulness? While we may not be laying children on an altar, or uh, like Samuel in the Old Testament, his mom like, you know, offered him to the priest in a, in a good way. Like he can go live and be uh, a prophet. Well, we're probably not doing that. How often have you seen children neglected so that someone can continue pursuing their sin? How many children in Northeast Arkansas are laid down at the altar of drug addiction? How many children in Northeast Arkansas are laid down at the altar of career advancement? And what at first seems like drastic and, and forward, and I suddenly realized is a very stark reality here. Like, what could I offer to keep pursuing my sin? What could I sacrifice so I can have my way? God, what could I give you so you'll leave me alone and let me live my life the way I want it? And he continues in verse 8. He has shown you, O mortal, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? to act justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So with the time that we have remaining, we're going to dive into this text and a a lot of other supporting texts to understand what it is the Lord requires of us. As we run through a bunch of these texts, if you're like, I cannot keep up writing all these references, go to the YouVersion Bible app. There are instructions here on the Connect card for how to find the notes, and all those passages are there, including this quote from Tim Keller. Micah 6.8 is a summary of how God wants us to live. To walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and loves. And what does that consist of? The text says to do justice and love mercy, which seems at first glance to be two different things, but they are not. In the original Hebrew, the words used put emphasis on justice being an action and mercy being an attitude. So to walk with God then, we must do justice out of merciful love. 
Justice means more than just the punishment of wrongdoing. It also means to give people their rights, giving people what they're due, whether punishment or protection. So keep this, mind, keep this quote in mind as we basically kind of walk through and unpack this little by little as we move through the implications of Micah 6. So first, let's consider Keller's understanding of walking humbly with God. He says that to walk humbly with God is to know him intimately and to be attentive to what he desires and loves. And what is it that he desires and loves? Okay, so some people will look at the Bible and think about the Old Testament I think that, that, that there's a, the God that's described in the Old Testament is this mean, cruel, like judgmental God. And they go to the New Testament and they have this merciful, loving, compassionate God in Jesus. There is no like God of the Old Testament and God of the New Testament. Take a look at a few of the texts that I found where God is passionate about justice and mercy. There's just a few. <laughs> And honestly, like, I just had to stop writing them down because I knew I was going to overwhelm you. There's Old Testament text. There's New Testament text. You got your least favorite book there, Leviticus 24. Like, the God of Old Testament is loving and compassionate and full of mercy and steadfast love. Like, I didn't even include compassion and steadfast love in all of these. So consider several of these texts that describe who God is and what he's about. So this is the God that you're called to know. Isaiah 61 says... For I, the Lord, love justice. I hate robbery and wrongdoing. 1 Samuel 2 says, He raises up the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. Psalm 12 says, Because the poor are plundered and the needy groan, I will now arise, says the Lord. I will protect them from those who malign them. Psalm 146 says, God upholds the cause of the oppressed and gives food to the hungry. The Lord sets the prisoner free. The Lord gives sight to the blind. The Lord lifts up those who are bowed down. The Lord loves the righteous. The Lord watches over the foreigner and sustains the fatherless and the widow. Jeremiah 22, he's talking about a previous king. He says, this king defended the cause of the poor and needy. And so all went well. Is that not what it means to know me, declares the Lord? Let the one who boasts in Jeremiah 9, let the one who boasts, boast about this, that they have an understanding to know me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness, justice, righteousness on earth. For in these I delight. This is the God that Micah calls you to walk humbly with. Or as Tim Keller says, to intimately know. This God of justice, this God of mercy, this God of steadfast love, this is the God of all of our scripture. Jesus, who came and healed the sick and welcomed the outcast, is the very same God who over and over and over in the Old Testament shows mercy to Israel when they turn their back on him. He's crying out, saying, I care for you. I delight in kindness and justice and righteousness. And that Jeremiah 22 text claims that the knowledge uh, of God is directly tied to defending the cause of the poor and needy. Because you see, Micah doesn't only call us to know this God. He calls us to do something. Micah has spent five plus chapters condemning the way the Israelites were living their lives. And now in response to an attempt to appease God with sacrifices, tainted sacrifices at that. And in response to that, Micah says, he's shown you what's good and what it is that he requires. So what is the good that he's shown you? He's shown you his character. God is good, just, righteous, faithful. And what does he require of you? 
to act justly. Those texts that we just read about how God wants to care for the poor and needy, the fatherless and the widow, the way in which he wants to do that is through the church. He doesn't call the church to just sit back and watch him care for the poor and needy. He works through the church to care for the poor and needy. So I want us to start with this framework to understand that this Micah text is not a one-off command in the Old Testament about how we live our life. This is the commandment throughout all of Scripture. What does Jesus tell us is the greatest commandment? It's to love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. And the second is like it, to love your neighbor as yourself. You might also know the verse 1 John 3.16. I wonder if you know how it continues. It says, By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us. And that's a verse that you should commit to memory and remind yourself over and over when you feel like a failure. This is how we know love. How do I know God loves me? Jesus laid his life down for me. And it continues. We ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. We know love by Jesus' action. Not just by his theological teachings, although you can't have one without the other. The problem is that we often can neglect acting justly because we want to debate the doctrine of justification. When I think of justice, man, my mind almost always just goes to the punishment that someone deserves. So like in that same neighborhood in Blue Hills, I've told you about this in September of last year, like we were robbed. And I think about that time and I think about how angry I was that someone would come into my house and steal our belongings, and then come back later and steal our car. I was filled with rage. I wanted justice to come. But Keller reminds us that justice means more than just punishment of wrongdoing. It also means to give people their rights, giving people what they are due, whether punishment or protection. Matt Perman, in a book about productivity of all books, says this, doing justice means not just being fair and honest in all your dealings, but using any influence and ability you have on behalf of those in need. What he's talking about is like being productive, like being able to schedule your time so that you have margins so that you can act justly. There's a reason he wants to be more efficient in all of his life is so he's available. The commands throughout the scripture are evident. Over and over again, we see in the Old Testament that people are told to be just, to be fair. God tells them over and over that it is wicked to be unjust. But this justice is not simply about you being a fair person. It's not just about you being a good citizen or a boss who doesn't take advantage of their employees. God doesn't only call us to passively be fair, but he calls us to use our voice for the oppressed. Hear Proverbs 31, 8 through 9. It says, open your mouth for the mute, for the rights of all who are destitute. Open your mouth, judge righteously, defend the rights of the poor and needy. He's not talking about specifically the mute who cannot speak. He's talking about open your mouth for anyone who doesn't have a voice. To act justly means to use what power you have to speak up for the rights of all others. In other places in Scripture, God commands us with this dual command to do what is just and right. And this pairing is important. 
justice and righteousness. You see Psalm 89 pairs them together when it says righteousness and justice are the foundations of God's throne. In the original Hebrew, and I am not a Hebrew scholar, so don't trust me on these pronunciations, the words are mishpat and tzedakah. Mishpat is this word that most often is translated as justice, meaning fairness, one's legal right. And Sadeka is almost always translated as righteousness, but can also mean justice. And while Sadeka is not directly in our text in Micah, throughout the Old Testament, these two are linked together over and over and over. I found 17 times in my own research. Biblically speaking, you cannot separate personal righteousness with outward Uh, works of justice and mercy. To be righteous is to care for the poor. This is why James writes so sternly in the New Testament, going so far as to say that a faith that does not care for the poor is dead. We we probably always hear in our head, faith without works is dead. But the context of everything he's talking about is not caring for the poor. He doesn't tell us that to be righteous means to do your quiet time or to tithe to the church, or practice silence and solitude. These are all good things, and you should do them. But righteousness cannot coexist with injustice. And the lack of proactive justice is injustice. Jesus condemns the Pharisees, saying that they not only tithe their money, they tithe on everything, but they neglect the more important matters, he says. Justice and mercy. He doesn't say they shouldn't have tithed. It's great. Keep on tithing. But he says he should not have neglected justice and mercy. Now hear how um, Eugene Peterson uh, translated a passage from Amos 5. It is incredibly convicting to me. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, I can't stand your religious meetings. I'm fed up with your conferences and conventions. I want nothing to do with your religion projects, your pretentious slogans and goals. I'm sick of your fundraising schemes, your public relations and image making. I've had all I can take of your noisy ego music. When was the last time you sang to me? Do you know what I want? I want justice, oceans of it. I want fairness, rivers of it. That's what I want. That's all I want. In Micah, they're offering him rivers of olive oil, right? It's a metaphor, like just so much oil, like we're giving it to you, God, right? It's not what he wants. He wants rivers of fairness. God is longing for us to partner with him in justice in our world. And as you examine all of these passages where we're commanded to have the same heart of God in this matter, four groups of people come up over and over, and Nicholas Walterstorff calls them the quartet of the vulnerable ones. The quartet of the vulnerable ones are widows, orphans, sojourners, and the poor. So why is God so concerned about these four groups of people? Well, especially in the biblical days, these groups had little to no social or political, economic power. Because they have little power, it's so much easier to perform injustice against them without any ramification. The poor, even today, are more often victims of robbery than others because they have no power to defend themselves. Proverbs 14 says that, this, talking about God, he says that whoever oppresses the poor shows contempt for their maker. Psalm 68 says that God is the father of the fatherless, the defender of widows. He defends the cause of the fatherless and the widow. He loves the immigrant, Deuteronomy 10 tells us. And he commands us in Zechariah 7, 
This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the immigrant or the poor. Now, does that mean we should neglect people that are outside of this quartet? Of course not. There are plenty of passages that talk about like judging fairly and not like judge in the favor of the poor just because they're poor. Like judge fairly, like just do it fair. Um, the text I alluded to earlier where Jesus uh, judges the, the Pharisees because they're, they've forgotten mercy, he's actually eating in the home of Matthew, the tax collector. So he's with a very rich man who also has not been merciful to his people. So in this opportunity, Jesus is talking to a super religious guy and a super not religious guy. And he's basically telling both of them, you need to repent and be merciful. That's what I'm calling you to. Religious and irreligious, you need to repent and be merciful. He knows that we have a tendency to associate with those that benefit us. We have a tendency to neglect the weakest social classes. It's been this way for thousands of years and it will be this way until Jesus returns. But God loves and defends those with the least economic and social power and he calls us to do the same. He calls us to be merciful as he is merciful. So how are you being merciful today? Do you allow yourself this opportunity to be merciful today? Paragol is a city of 30,000 people and we have an 18% poverty rate. That compares to Arkansas's poverty rate of 15%, which compares to the U.S. poverty rate of 13%. So 18 to 13, what's that tell us? We live in a more poor city than most. And as you look into like what is the poverty rate, like some of you would probably be shocked to understand that someone can live not in the poverty rate and make so little money for their family size. Like it's pennies. There are nearly 5,000 children in Arkansas, in foster care system right now. We have more refugees in Paragol now than we did 20 years ago. And these uh, people can be mistreated, misunderstood, and certainly forgotten. And it's widely known that we have a major drug epidemic in Northeast Arkansas, which is getting more and more dangerous year after year with the increase of fentanyl and being laced in drugs. In 2014, there were three fatal overdoses linked to fentanyl. And in 2021, there were nearly 300 Arkansans that overdosed and died. These are our quartet of the vulnerable ones. We have missional communities that are trying to act justly with loving mercy towards these people groups in small, consistent ways over time. And I hope that you would be encouraged by this and follow suit. So we have a a missional community reaching out to Muslim refugees who live here in Paragold and need an advocate so that they can understand what's being told to them and help them not be misunderstood. We have several missional communities that are serving people trapped in cycles of addiction. And several weeks ago, I visited one of them. And man, I was just blown away by that missional community's love for their brothers and sisters. It wasn't even serving them. It was, it's us. We're together in this. We have a missional community working right now diligently to reopen our benevolence like mercy closet. We had this up and running in the past, but COVID kind of made it fall to the wayside a little bit. But we're working hard to have a benevolence closet open again. We have a a group thinking about launching a new mission that reaches out to single moms who don't have the same uh, social, uh, economic, like financial support systems that so many people do. So when they are having a baby, they don't get the nice glamorous baby shower 
So they want to serve them and, and support them. So how are you using your time, talents, and treasures to act justly in our city with mercy? Kyle Harper is a historian. He says that you can trace the spread of the early church by tracing the legal ban of sexual slavery in the Roman Empire. The early church was acting justly with loving mercy as they walked humbly with God to ban sexual slavery in the Roman Empire. What would happen to Paragold if this group of people acted justly with loving mercy, walking humbly to serve the quartet of our vulnerable ones here? What's stopping us from doing that? So I think we need three things in order to start taking steps in this direction. I'll run through these and then we're pretty close to the end. So first we need compassion. We need the heart of God for the marginalized. And I do say we because this is not some preacher up here who's got it all figured out and pointing the finger at you. I need the heart for the marginalized. As I walked here this morning, that was pretty much my only prayer. Like, I need this. I need this. I need this. I need to put myself in the presence of the marginalized so that I cannot be, so I can stop being blind to their needs. The closer you get to their pain, the more compassion you have for them. The more compassion you have for them, the more often you stop referring to them as them and as us. Second, we need capacity. We need to to budget for this. And if you're constantly rushing from place to place, from activity to activity, how can you expect to be in a spot where you possibly have time for another person? How can you speak up for the oppressed if you're busy just getting to the next thing? How can you give to someone in need if your budget is already strapped, if you're already overwhelmed in credit card debt? What would it look like if you budgeted your time and your money to be available for the margins, be available to spontaneously reach someone that's in this quartet of the vulnerable? And finally, we need courage. We're going to have compassion We can have capacity all day long, but if you don't have the courage to actually take steps forward in this, you never will. The most courageous thing you can do in acting justly is inviting someone into a relationship. You see, Jesus does not call us just to charity. He doesn't say, hey, you can just throw money at a homeless guy and get to feel good about yourself. Jesus calls us to relationships. Jesus sat down and ate with the oppressed. So, In this Preach the Gospel practicing series, here are two practices for you. First, read 1 John 3, 16 to 18 once a day, every day this week. And I would actually encourage you to write it down. Get a notepad, write out 1 John 3, 16 to 18 this afternoon. Tomorrow morning, first thing, write it out again. Just write it on the same piece of paper once a day, every day. We need to hear and meditate on our salvation in Jesus and, and be so thankful for that. And hear the call that he gives us to lay down our lives for our brothers. Second, and this is Jared's idea, so don't, don't be like Chris is just winging it. Skip your MC meal next week. Skip it so that you can put yourself in a position to be able to serve and be with the quartet of the vulnerable ones. You'll have to do some planning probably this week on what you're doing. If your missional community is already reaching this people group, great. Go another step further next week. Like do it twice next week or something like that. Like continue in on that. If your missional community is like mine and we, our, our mission is the next steps mission. So again, if you're new, my missional community can help you get plugged in. 
we can come across the quartet of the vulnerable, but that's not our primary focus. And so today in our lunch, we'll be talking about, okay, what do we do next week so we can intentionally serve and put ourselves in the, the presence of the vulnerable ones? And if your MC is struggling in the realm of mission, I would plead with you, whether you're the MC host or not, if you just feel like the lowly participant in your MC, fast and pray this week about God giving you a compassion for his people. It's hard to go wrong loving on the people that God loves. So as we close, I have just a few encouragements. This is our Preach the Gospel series. So please believe this quote from Francis of Assisi. It is no use walking anywhere to preach unless our walking is our preaching. He's the first person to say, you got to walk the walk before you talk the talk. Come here every Sunday, hear the gospel preached to you, and then go out and live your life however you want to live is not walking the walk. Reaching the poor, reaching the, the widow, reaching the orphan with the gospel, with God's mercy, that's walking the walk. The gospel you proclaim must be backed up by the gospel you demonstrate. And as the body of Christ, the church should be good news to our neighbor as we proclaim the good news and demonstrate life in the kingdom. The reality of justice being that we're given what we're due, whether it's punishment or protection, we're given what we're due, intertwined with the reality of our sinfulness is actually bad news. In our sin, we have violated the highest of pure laws and justice means punishment. But God loves us so much that he's provided a way for us to be saved. He has provided a way for someone else to take the justice that we deserve. We cannot offer God a thousand rams or rivers of olive oil. Even if we had them, he wouldn't accept them. We cannot offer him our money or our good works. We can only offer God our need for a savior. And good news, you're rich in need. You're very needy. You can act justly only because God took his justice out on Jesus. You can love mercy only because God has shown mercy to you through Jesus. You can walk humbly with God only because he has removed your sin through Jesus. And if you came in the, in the room this morning and that's not true for you, please know that it can be. All the guilt and shame that you brought in with you today can be laid down because he loves you. You may sense this sermon is kind of directed at the believers in the room as the church embodying this gospel. And I hope that underneath all of that, what you hear is God's heart for you. That he wants to be merciful to you. That he wants to pull you up. He wants to love you and care for you. And he wants to do that through the church as well. Isaiah 1 says this. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. We can only do that through Jesus. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes and cease to do evil. Then what? Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. What he's saying is repent. Repent from a sinful pursuit of your own kingdom and turn to him and his kingdom. And what you're turning to in him and his kingdom is enacting justice and mercy to the people of God, to the people who will be the people of God. So I'm going to invite the, the band back up now. And if you're serving communion, you can come too. So this justice being enacted on someone is what we celebrate every single week when we celebrate communion. This bread and this juice just represents the body and blood of Jesus. This, this bread is his perfect life lived for you. And his blood is his death 
to cover your sins, to wash you clean. So if you're a Christian, I would invite you to come and partake in this. Like every, every day, you have the world telling you that you can do it on your own. You can save yourself. You can pursue the American dream or whatever it is. That somehow the solution to all your problems is deep inside you. But the gospel says that our problem is deep inside of us and the solution is outside of us in Jesus Christ alone. So that's what we celebrate here. We're testifying, I cannot save myself. I cannot offer God anything except for my need and say, Jesus has done it all for me. And so if that's you, if you would call yourself a Christian, you can come forward uh, up front here. They have got gloves and they will rip a, a piece of the bread off. They'll hand it to you and say, this is the body of Christ broken for you. And you'll take that and dip it into the juice and they'll say, this is the blood of Christ shed for you. And if you're uncomfortable coming up here, we do still have the individual servings in the back of the room as well. If you're not a believer, this will do you no good. This is a very important meal to us, but it's a symbol of a truth that you've not embodied yet. So my call to you would be don't, don't waste this time. Use this as a time to pray and ask God to reveal himself to you. If you need someone to pray with you, I'm here. Pastor Jared's here. Pretty much anybody in the room would love to pray with you. Come find us. Don't, don't waste the time. So I'm going to pray. Father, thank you for... Oh, thank you for being a merciful God first. You love us. You care, us, care for us. You love us more than we could ever imagine being loved. Like We're more sinful than we ever dared imagine. We're more loved than we could ever fathom. Help us to embrace that. Help us to stop when we're blinded to um, the allure of pursuing an American dream or just being safe. Open our eyes to the vulnerable ones and let that gospel first take root in our, our, our hearts and our lives because we can't take a gospel to someone if we don't believe it ourselves. So would you bless our time as we worship you through this symbolic act? It's in Jesus' name I pray, amen.